sermon text for today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Mark 10, 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. We have a lot of first-time parents at our church. We're blessed beyond degree with new life among us. This is joyous. Even as I'm looking around, I'm seeing little faces in the building, and that is a blessing. Along with first-time parenting comes a zeal that seems to belong to the first child only. First child gets the baby picture book the month anniversary, and all kinds of things, but from the second child on, they, they don't get any of that. First-time parents are endowed with great zeal, but sometimes being overzealous can be unhelpful, can't it? Our zeal can at times be mistaken or misplaced. Indian and I were definitely guilty of that with Boaz, not so much with Elise. When Boaz was first born, I remember when we brought him to the home, we installed light blocking curtains in his room. So pretty much for the first six weeks of his life, Boaz saw no natural light. Son, sorry. We're trying to make up for that, letting you get out a little bit more these days. It's interesting that as we turn to our text today, the disciples do the same thing we did, but in a spiritual way. They have zeal, but their zeal was misplaced, mistaken. They tried to keep the light of Christ from shining on the children. So what we see in our text today is Jesus' response to those who attempt to keep others from coming to the gospel. To obscure the gospel, to keep the light of the gospel from shining, is to contribute to the work of the devil. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded their minds, the minds of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So it is not surprising that just a couple of chapters earlier, when Peter attempted to dissuade Jesus from walking towards the cross, Jesus rebuked him. And Jesus rebuked him for teaming up with Satan. Mark 8.33, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind 
on the things of God, but on the things of men. Remember from the opening verse of Mark, we're being reminded of the gospel. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus' very first message was again the proclamation of the gospel. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So to oppose, to obscure, to obfuscate the gospel is to oppose Jesus and to oppose his mission. So if this text teaches us anything, it teaches us that if we love Jesus, we will constantly be ridding our, our lives from anything that can cause the gospel not to be clear to others. So in our text today, we're going to see one gospel compromising action from the disciples. And then we'll see two appropriate responses from Jesus. So here are my points. First, we'll see the disciples' interference with Jesus' ministry. Then we'll see Jesus' indignation with the disciples. And finally, we'll see Jesus' instruction to his followers. So let's consider first Jesus' interference with, I'm sorry, the disciples' interference with Jesus' ministry. Notice in verse 13, we're told that they were bringing children to him. We know who the him is, that's Jesus, but we're not told who the they are. The they likely refers to parents, relatives, friends, nurses. But they clear, clearly understood that Jesus' touch was powerful. Perhaps they wanted to give this to the children as a gift and a reminder for them later on in life. Remember who touched you when you were a baby. Remember whose power you experienced when you were young. Jesus' touch has called the lame to walk. He has healed the blind, and he has raised the dead. So, of course, who wouldn't want Jesus to bless their babies with his touch? Mark emphasizes children in his gospel quite often, and we've seen a great emphasis here in this section between chapters 8 and 10. But remember, in chapter 6, we met Jairus. He was the the commander, the chief of the synagogue, and his daughter, who was dead. But she was raised from the dead by Jesus. In chapter 7, we met the Syrophoenician woman who begged Jesus to deliver her demon-possessed son. And with great faith, she moved the heart of Jesus, and Jesus healed her son. In chapter 9, Jesus delivered a boy from a demon that not even his disciples could cast out. And even later in the same chapter, chapter 9, Jesus humbles his proud disciples using a child that he picks up as the quintessential example of greatness. 
Children are important for Mark because children are important for Jesus. And children should be important for us. The word Mark uses here to describe children is the word paideia. Several words in the Greek language that describe children. This perhaps might be the more common one. It's definitely one of the most common ones. And this is more of a generic word that could refer to a newborn baby all the way to a preteen. So when Jairus' daughter, uh, Mark uh, describes Jairus' daughter in chapter 5, he uses the same word even though she was 12 years old. But Jesus is likely interacting with very little children here, perhaps even babies. Notice is that he picks them up in verse 16. If I'm learning anything in my parental experience right, experience right now, is that it is easier to pick up Elise than Boaz for obvious reasons, right? So these are likely babies that are being carried. As a matter of fact, in the parallel passage in Luke, Luke specifically uses a term that can only refer to babies. So as we're going through this passage, and this will become more important later on, we're primarily thinking of babies being brought to Jesus in order to be blessed. Babies are special, but they often enter our lives in very inconvenient way. can tell you how many times people told me, sleep all you can, because you're not going to sleep again for a very long time. And I wish sleep accumulation was possible, but it is not. Babies cry whenever they want. They never fail to make their needs known. Sometimes you feed them, and 45 minutes later, they're hungry again. They have a will, and it's always strong. But even though children do bring a special and often difficult dynamic to our lives, they're never hindrances. Because as Christians, we know that childbearing and childrearing come with a purpose. Christians find purpose in raising children, whether in community, right? So, so uh, by the way, if you have no children, this passage is really going to help you think of how you ought to view children in the church. Even the barren is blessed in the church with the children of the community, right? So whether we are thinking of the purpose of raising children in community or in the home, as we lead them to a saving knowledge of Christ. This is why it was so wrong for the disciples to rebuke those who were bringing the children to Christ. They thought of themselves as the guardians of Christ, so they wanted to block hindrances from Christ. The disciples were self-appointed keepers of the gospel, keepers of the light, but in doing so, they veiled the light of Christ. We have to be very careful that our religious zeal never becomes a stumbling block for others to follow Christ. 
We have to be careful not to be overly zealous. We have to be careful that our requirements for someone to come to Christ do not supersede Jesus' own requirements for someone to come to him. This is what the disciples were doing. They were placing a law around Christ. The writer of Ecclesiastes, by the way, starting the second week of January, after we finish the 11th chapter of Mark, we're going to go through the book of Ecclesiastes. So uh, you can be praying for me for that as I prepare, and I'll be praying for you that you receive a word from the Lord from that series. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, be not overly righteous. That's a surprising statement, isn't it? Be not overly righteous. And do not make yourself too wise. Surprising statement as well. Why should you destroy yourself? The commandment here is not to be less than righteous, but not to impose righteousness on yourself or on others that is greater than the righteousness that Jesus requires. That's what it means to be overly righteous. In other words, this is an indictment against legalism. The disciples were taking a page out of the Pharisees' playbook. And Ecclesiastes reminds us that requiring righteousness that supersedes the righteousness that God demands puts us at risk of destroying ourselves. This is why Jesus responds the way he does. So let's consider now Jesus' first response, his indignation towards his disciples. Perhaps the first thought that the average person in the world has when they think of Jesus is not of someone who is indignant. They don't think of Jesus as an indignant man. In many ways, cultural Christianity has developed a sanitized version of Jesus that rids him of anything that resembles judgment. But Jesus is the righteous judge of all the earth. John 5.22, Jesus speaking, he says, For the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus is the judge of all. Acts 10.42, and, and he commanded us to preach the gospel and to testify that he, that is Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and of the dead. Jesus did not come his first time to judge the world, but he sure will come to judge the world the second time. So we need to have a right picture of Jesus, not one that simply displays love, tenderness, compassion, and mercy, although these things are true of Jesus, but one that accounts for his justice and wrath. But is it right for Jesus to be angry? Is it right for Jesus to be indignant? And the answer is yes. Yes, it is. Why? Because Jesus' anger does not flow out of a lapse in his character. 
but out of his righteous sense of justice. There is an anger that is right. There is an anger that is righteous. And the anger that is righteous is an anger that responds to injustice. Jesus' sense of justice is the controlling attribute. And his anger flows from that. You see, we are often anger, angry because we're capricious. Because we're moody. Right? Jesus is never angry because he's moody or capricious. Jesus only displays anger when his justice is afflicted. So Psalm 711 says this, God is a righteous judge. Okay, so you see the, you see the, 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 the righteousness, the justice there. And a God who feels indignation every day. Wow. So indignation is not just an occasional right, response in the heart of God, but it's a daily response. Why? Because wickedness happens every day. So God responds with indignation every day. So God's anger is rooted in His justice. Jesus sees, sees little children being kept away from Him. He sees injustice, so He responds with anger. He responds with indignation. Last week, Indy and I were in St. Augustine for a pastor's and pastor's wife's conference. We had some uh, downtime, so we decided to take a stroll in downtown St. Augustine, a beautiful historical city. As we were walking, we were approached by a man with several clipboards in his hand. He asked us if we were Florida voters, to which we say we are, and he asked if we would be willing to sign a petition to expand the right to abortion in the state of Florida. I responded to him with great anger and indignation. I was not concerned that my church would see my face on the newspaper when I was speaking to that man on the streets because I believe my indignation was right. Because there's no other way to respond to someone promoting such great wickedness in the streets than with anger and indignation. The babies who are being murdered deserve our indignation, deserve our anger. It is right to be indignant in light of injustice and wickedness. And the disciples' obstruction of the little children represented to Jesus wickedness. Just imagine Jesus, the Christ, the eternal Son of God, who formed together these little ones in the wombs of their mothers, who gave them a body and a soul, who left heaven so that he could meet them, is now being kept from them by legalistic disciples who think too highly of them when they ought to not think highly of themselves at all. So Jesus speaks in his indignation and he says to the disciples, let the children come to me, do not hinder them. 
Jesus advocates for the children. He advocates for the weak. He advocates for those who cannot advocate for himself. So Jesus' voice in his anger is the protection of the least of these. Children were not so endearing in the eyes of the ancient world until they were of age and able to add to the income of the house. They were viewed as hindrances, burdens, liabilities. Until they were able to produce and contribute, they had no value. But Jesus sees value in these children. Not because he can gain anything from them, but because he's able to give them something. He is able to bless them. Jesus sees value where no one sees value. Jesus is able to find a precious treasure where the world sees trash. Now, this was a foreign thought in the minds of the disciples. They were concerned with their greatness. They wanted to be served and not to serve. The disciples were each thinking, how can I advance my agenda? And friends, they saw no help for that in children. The disciples were not consuming with the building of the kingdom of God. They wanted to build their own small little kingdoms. And in the kingdom of the disciples, serving the weak was of little to no importance. But listen to how differently the Apostle Paul speaks of our Lord Jesus Christ. As you're reading the book of Acts, and you're flipping through the page, and you have this, if you have one of those red-letter Bibles, right? You'll be flipping through a sea of black letters until you come to chapter 20, and you see just those red letters of Jesus speaking. The Apostle Paul shared with us, Acts 20, verse 36, he says, the Apostle speaking, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. The disciples didn't understand that, but Jesus did. The kingdom of God is a kingdom that functions differently than the kingdoms of the world, while the citizens of the kingdom of the world take and take and take. The kingdom of heaven gives and gives and gives. In the kingdom of God, the needy, the broken, the poor are not hindrances. They are at the heart of the kingdom, or better put, they are in the heart of the king. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. And I'll stop here because apparently the second half of the song has become politically incorrect. But it is true. He loves all the little children. Jesus loves children and he wants them to come to him not because they have anything to offer him, but because he's able to offer them himself. So, children, do you know that Jesus wants you to come to him? 
But how? How do you come to Jesus? It's actually very simple. And the only reason why it's simple is because Jesus has done all the hard work for us. If you love Jesus in your heart, you tell him you love him. Then tell him you know you've done things you shouldn't have done. Those are called sins. But you've repented. And you ask him to forgive you. And then you tell the whole church. You, how do you tell the whole church? By being baptized. And that's how Christians tell the world that they love Jesus. And they don't love their sin. And they repent from their sin. Baptism is just this. When you're being baptized, you're just telling the world or the whole church and the world that you love Jesus. You're telling the world and the church that he has forgiven you of your sins. And you want to live a life that honors him. So, children, if you are thinking about what I just said, if you're saying, I do love Jesus, and I do want to repent from my sins, and I do want to tell the whole world, would you talk to your parents today at lunch and just tell them, hey, mom, dad, I, I believe what Pastor Lucas was talking about today, and I want to be obedient to Jesus. I want to be baptized. I want to proclaim to the world that I love him. And then tell them to tell me so I can meet with you and we can start talking about what it means to publicly profess your faith in Christ. Friends, we who are adults and know the Lord have a great responsibility towards the children of this church, don't we? We have the responsibility to uphold the gospel to them. We must speak gospel truths with fluency. We must be able to speak the great mysteries of the faith in ways that children can understand. I remember being told in seminary, you don't understand the Trinity until you've explained it to a five-year-old. So nobody understands the Trinity, right? We must speak the deep truths of the faith to their hearts. We must not limit our interactions with sm to small talk or dismissive talk with them, but we must go deep. We know the essence of the faith and we must share it with them. So, so many here, right, volunteer in the nursery, teach Sunday school, lead children's choirs. But this is the function of the whole church. We're all raising them to know the Lord. Use every opportunity you have as you interact with children to speak gospel truths into their hearts. We also have the responsibility to teach them the truths about regeneration. One of the greatest disfavors we can render to our children is to assume that they are born again simply because they come to church. No, friends, all of our children must have a personal relationship with Christ. They ought to publicly profess their faith in Christ. They ought to be baptized, but once they're born again. This week, Indy and I met with a lawyer as we drafted a will. 
And one of the questions we had to answer was, what will happen with all your earthly riches if both of you pass away? Well, there is not much, right? But we need to make a decision. The answer was very simple. It all goes to Boaz and to Elise. All our earthly goods pass on to them. But there is a heavenly good that we have that they cannot inherit from us. They cannot inherit our great, uh, they cannot inherit our salvation. They must come to Christ themselves. William Wilberforce, the English abolitionist, once said, authentic faith cannot be inherited in his rights. This is true. You must tell your children, you must be born again, lest you perish. But we also have the responsibility to welcome them among us. Sometimes we can have good intentions and still keep the children from coming to Jesus. I think the culture that overtook the evangelical movement in America in the past few decades has been very detrimental to our children. We have sent them to youth services and children's church during the gathering of believers, and we have deprived them from the witnessing the worship of God's people. Now, our church does offer nursery, right, for children five and younger, and right now, my one-year-old daughter is there. So I'm not speaking against that. I'm speaking against raising our children outside of the church. Raising our children outside of the gathering of believers. Friends, how many of us have grown up sitting on pews like these ones with our parents, learning to worship by watching them worship? Yes, so many of us grew up well acquainted with the bottom of the pews. We know every piece of gum that was down there, and we knew all the little corners that the vacuum cleaner didn't reach. And yet, here we are, walking with the Lord. And to deprive the children from the gathering of believers is to deprive them from the place where the word of Christ dwells richly. To deprive children from the gathering of believers is to deprive them, is to keep them from the preaching of the gospel. To deprive children from the gathering of believers is to cut them off from the gospel witness of the ordinances. You know, our son always asks us about the Lord's Supper because he notices there is a difference between what we do and what he does. And guess what we do every time he asks that question? Son, you must be born again. Son, you must experience Christ. Friends, let us not, let us not. Here's a funny story. When, I think when I was, when I, when, I, when I baptized Russell, right? Uh, Boaz was just talking to us about why was dad in the bathtub at church? And then we found him baptizing his dinosaurs in the bathtub afterwards. <laughs> he understood it, right? He understood what was happening. What a great teaching opportunity, right? We don't want to keep our children from seeing these things. Friends, we don't want to keep our children from seeing us pouring out our hearts. Did you hear the church singing, the Lord is my salvation today? Do we not want to hear our children say that? 
hear us say that about our Lord, that he is our salvation, that he's our mighty fortress, and see us pouring out our hearts before the Lord in truth and in worship. So, friends, let us welcome our children among us. So when you hear the sound of children in our auditorium, just know that you are hearing the sound of life. If you hear children among us, know that you're hearing the sounds of hope for the future. Listen to Jesus' word again. Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So let's think a little bit about what that means. What does it mean that to them, it belong, the kingdom of God belongs to them? So listen to Jesus' instruction for his followers. Now Jesus goes on to correct his disciples. This is how he instructs them. He instructs them through correction. He doesn't just rebuke them. He corrects their wrong approach to the gospel. So he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So the disciples are thinking of themselves as the guardians of the kingdom. They're thinking of themselves as deserving of a place in the kingdom, a place with Jesus, but they see the little children as undeserving, right? Jesus, as often he does, flips the disciples' assumptions on its head. No, it is not you who is worthy of the kingdom. It is actually the children you are trying to keep from me that are deserving of the kingdom of God. This is a theme running through this section in Mark. The last shall be first. The weak is the strong. So throughout this intense section of discipleship, Jesus is helping his disciples understand that the virtues of the kingdom of this world are not the virtues of the kingdom of God. So what are the virtues of the kingdom of God? They're the virtues that are displayed by children. The virtues that are displayed by little babies. Now, some commentators argue that the virtues Jesus is highlighting here are the innocence or the purity of children. But I don't think this is a good argument. Notice that Jesus does not say that little children receive the kingdom of God. No. Jesus says that such as little children, those were such as little children, receive the kingdom of God. We know that children are born into sin. We're sinners by birth and by choice, and therefore we are from birth unworthy of the kingdom of God. So what virtue do children, more specifically babies, model to us, what virtue should we emulate from little children in order to receive the kingdom of God? And here is Jesus' surprising answer. The virtue of having no virtues. That's the virtue that babies bring. The virtue of having no virtues. 
Little children are completely dependable on others. They can't do much for themselves, so they have to depend on the strength of others. And this is the Christian life. The story is a prime example of the fact that salvation is an act of grace from the part of God. No, it's not your greatness, nor your religious status, nor your works, nor your worthiness that makes you fit for the kingdom. It is actually your inability, your dependence, your weakness that makes you eligible, an eligible candidate to this kingdom. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, 8, and 9, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You see, he pits all of his accomplishments against knowing Christ. He can't bring that and experience this at the same time. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. So Paul is saying, I'm a man of no virtues. And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Friends, I wonder if you think of yourself as someone who brings no value to the table when it comes to the salvation of your soul. I wonder if you view yourself as completely dependent on the grace and the mercies of Christ. This message is a lesson to the disciples who forsook all things and walked with Christ and yet had a high view of their religious accomplishments, had a high view of themselves. Friends, the gospel demands that we find no value in ourselves because any value that we bring to the table is value that we're detracting from the glory that Jesus is due for the work that he's accomplished for us. If we say, I am saved because of Christ and because of anything else, we're robbing Christ of the glory that he deserves and the glory that he's earned. We are like babies, completely dependent on others, bringing us to Christ and Christ receiving us. And if we don't approach Christ as babies, we will not receive his gospel. Because just as parents of little babies have to do everything for their babies, Jesus, our Savior, has done everything for us. He has lived the life that we could not have lived. As Jesus walks to the cross, he is forsaken by his friends, his disciples. And as Jesus hangs on the cross, the kingdom of God is comprised of one man in one place, 
Christ alone. He tells his disciples, where I'm going, you cannot go with me because that cross was for Christ and Christ alone. And the righteous, spotless Lamb of God dies on the cross for the sins that he did not commit. And upon him rests all our condemnation. But Christ conquers the grave. He raises again from the dead. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. And he sits because his work is done. And he rules. So friends, this is the invitation of the gospel. We spiritually are babies who depend on a Savior who can accomplish all things for us. How can you enter the kingdom of God? By faith. Simply by faith. Not one ounce of works can come along with it. Notice that in verse 16, the story ends with the children safely in the arms of Jesus. Friends, nothing will separate those who are in the heart of the king from coming to the king. All who are Christ's will ultimately come to Christ. I wonder what is hindering you from coming to Christ today. I wonder if embarrassment and shame might be hindering you. What will others think of me? I wonder if pride is causing you to stumble. I'm better than this. I'm better than these people. They come here because they're weak, but I'm strong. I wonder if a misunderstanding of regeneration is keeping you from Christ. I grew up here. I've always gone to church. Why do I need anything else? I wonder if all of this just seems too simple for you. Faith cannot be enough. I need to do something to make myself right with God. Oh friend, do not linger. Do not look any further. Do not look within. Do not look around. Look up and see Christ. Christ is all you need. And today he's being offered to you. So receive Christ by faith and experience his grace today. Would you pray with me? Father, how thankful we are that although we could do nothing to save our souls, Christ has done it all. He's paid it all. He's accomplished all that was to be accomplished. So, Father, I pray that among us there would be none who would linger today, none that would be hindered from coming to Christ. Father, I pray that today you would drop every wall of hostility that may keep us from knowing Christ. Father, help us be a church that upholds the gospel in its most pure form so that all who hear may have faith, repent, and believe. We pray, Father, these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.